0: Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. <laughs> I'm Casey. Uh, my wife, Sarah, helps lead our kids' ministry. I've got two kids that are mysteriously blonde. Thad, who's four. Sophia, who's two. Here's a fun fact about me. Uh, today is actually the 14-year anniversary of my baptism. So how cool is that? Yeah. Um, Here's another fun fact. My YouTube algorithm thinks I'm a sucker. I've got gurus for days. I'm being told all manner of things. Make money on the internet without even trying. Why exercise when you can take this nice supplement instead? You know what's better than real estate? Digital real estate. (laughs) Have you seen these? You know what I'm talking about, right? Here's my favorite. This is how you know it's gotten really bad. This is a real ad. I'm not even making this up. Do you want to 10x your ministry? The startup gurus have come for Jesus. Lord, help us. I don't know why the algorithm thinks that I'm like really into empty promises or something, but it does. It's convinced. I want to be convinced. It's like, you know what Casey will be into? Scams. He seems like a scammable guy. See, this is how I know that doubt works. You want to do well in life? Doubt. You aren't sure about something? Stick with doubt. Doubt's useful. Doubt will protect you. Because we live in a world of scams. It's our banks, it's our politicians, it's our businesses, it's even our schools. Sometimes it feels like it's behind the eyes of every stranger we encounter. How many people in our city right now, right now, are telling someone they're going to make them a star, and they don't mean a word of it? In a world of scams, doubt is actually our superpower. In fact, we're so used to doubting, we don't even think it's special. Doubt just feels like prudence. Be careful, be wise, don't trust. They might be lying, or at least they might not be able to deliver. But what if somebody tells you, I love you? What if somebody says, i do anything for you? Or you mean the world to me? If God were speaking those words to you today, would you believe him? In our story today, you're going to see three kinds of doubts. First, is God worthy? Second, is God truly king? And third, is God enough? We're going to examine these doubts, and we're going to see how Jesus answers each of them. Because I believe that when you invite Jesus into your doubt, you'll find the rest and hope that can endure, even in a world full of falsehoods and broken promises. Let's read our passage today. This is from John 12. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. Whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made a plan to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. All right, we're going to talk about this passage in three parts. Part one, the party at Mary's house. Part two, the greeting with the palms. And part three, the fulfillment of the scriptures and the Pharisees. So let's start with the party. There's two pieces of context we need to know right off the bat hair and feet. Let's start with the funnier one. So, feet are like whatever to us. I mean, everyone has feet. We don't really have strong opinions about them. But here's some facts from the Jewish Encyclopedia as a welcome. It was customary for the host to provide water to wash, for the guests to wash their feet. And if you actually, if you didn't wash your feet for an extended period of time, that was considered a sign of deep mourning. Priests weren't even permitted to perform their duties unless they washed their feet. And, and this is key, it was the service expected from a wife to be rendered to her husband. So that's Feet. Let's talk about hair. In 1 Corinthians, it says that a woman's hair is her glory. And in fact, according to rabbinic tradition, women would go around with their hair covered in part to keep their beauty from attracting the attention of other men. And men who curled their hair or even wore it in certain fashions were considered vain. Hair in this culture was beauty. I kind of like to think of this as your beach body. (laughs) Do you have great abs? I do not. (laughs) But I think that that's kind of like having great hair in the Jewish world. In our culture, think about it, we do crazy stuff for the beach body. Sit-ups, terrible, hate them. Cool sculpting, super weird. Some of us even put electrodes on our skin and then we shock ourselves thousands of times just to get abs. That intense fixation, the lengths people will go to look a certain way, that's kind of what hair was like in first century Palestine. So, if you put two and two together, here's what you know right about the bat this passage between Mary and Jesus was a little bit scandalous. Sure, we only see Judas judge Mary for what she does, but that's because John, writing at the time that he was writing, assumed that everyone in the audience would already have these strong feelings about hair and about feet. They knew that Mary was performing the duty of a wife for her husband and spending not just her perfume, but her own physical beauty on him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of us like to think we're like Mary when it comes to Jesus. We sing worship. We go to church. We read our Bibles. We like to think we're the chill, friendly Christians, right? But Mary in this story is not the cool, casual believer we aspire to be. She's the person who ignores all of our social norms. She's walking around in the Ask Me About Jesus (laughs) t-shirt. Mary's the Christian you've looked down on. And most of us, I think, are kind of more like Judas or the other unvoiced critics at the table. According to our norms, we judge others, and we judge ourselves. We say, I want to worship. I just want to worship the right amount. You know, don't get too carried away. Don't, don't cry during the service. Don't say amen too loud. Don't be awkward. Don't let them look at me like I'm ridiculous. Don't let them look at me the way they looked at Mary. Worse, we're not even sure if God's really worthy of that kind of worship. Like, what's your bottle of perfume? Is it your finances, like Judas? Or maybe it's your reputation, your pride? Whatever it is, why do you think you're holding that back from him? I want you to put yourself in Mary's shoes in this passage Imagine someone you love, maybe that's your spouse, your child, your parents, somebody you're dating, your best friend, whoever it is, just think of them, okay? Now, you come home, and you find this person face down on the floor, and they're unresponsive. So you call 911, you're taken in the hospital in an ambulance, and as you ride there, you realize they're absolutely still. What happened? You don't even have time to figure it out. And by the time you get to the hospital, the doctors tell you, oh, there's not much that can be done. This person that you loved and trusted and relied on is snatched away, they're gone. So what are you feeling now? Well, you're grieving, right? And you're scared. Not only does the world seem like a place that's out of control, you never really had to think about your life without this person. You're starting to realize everything that's going to look different without them here. And then into the morgue walks this shaggy dude. And he's not a doctor, that's for sure, but from the moment he looks at you, you have the sense that he belongs there, that he knows what he's doing, and that he cares about you. Specifically, he walks over to the body, lying on the table next to you, covered with your tears, and he begins to cry. And before you can even be truly bewildered by all this, he says to the body, get up. And they do. Now, when you have this guy over for dinner... What are you gonna do for him? Is there anything that's too extravagant? Is there any expression of gratitude that would be too much? See, all of this happened in the chapter before this one. This story was the lead up to the party. And that loved one I had, you imagine, that was Lazarus, Mary's brother. But even in Lazarus's death, Mary is still better than most of us because before her brother was raised to life, Mary proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. Even when she had every right to doubt his promises, she believed. Despite our doubts, Jesus is worthy. He deserves extravagant worship. And to do that, we might have to lay down our social norms. We might have to lay down our judgments. We might have to be willing to look weird or foolish or feel awkward. We might even have to worship in the face of tragedy like Mary did. But when we can do that, we'll see him as worthy the way he was meant to be seen. Okay, part two, the greeting with the palms in Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered to yourself, like, why palms? I used to just think, like, oh, it's the desert. (laughs) There's palm trees around. That's reasonable, right? Someone just got a palm tree. Cool. Uh, The palms are actually kind of like the feet here. They're a loaded symbol. Because 200 years before Jesus' time, another Messianic leader had arisen, Judas Maccabeus, who led the Jews in a revolt against the Seleucid Empire. And this revolution was called the Maccabean Revolt. Its symbol was the palm. Now, to finance the revolution, the Jews minted their own coins. But they didn't have any king to put on the face of that coin, as is traditional, so they put a palm tree. And when they overthrew the Seleucids and celebrated this in Jerusalem, they did it by waving Palms. Now, this is a bit of a spicy take, but I want you to think about the Confederate flag. When you see it, your mind makes immediate associations, slavery and the Civil War, right? That flag, though we are almost 200 years removed from its history, its issues and its war, bears for us a generational memory. Just to see someone waving it is to know immediately a set of political positions they associate with, and at the same time, to remember a bloody, violent piece of America's history. The waving of palms is akin to that. It's a call back to Maccabees, to the overthrowing of empires, to Jewish independence. It's a cry for liberation. And that's why when Jesus shows up, they're waving palms. Which also makes Jesus' choice of entry so important. John mentions that he's fulfilling the scriptures by arriving on a donkey. But let's go there and see what it says. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, I see your palms I raise you a donkey, right? I think, like this crowd who welcomes Jesus, we want a king to liberate us from evil. But then we doubt his kingship because Jesus doesn't evince worldly power. In fact, he doesn't seem to have any use for worldly power. We doubt him because when he shows up in our lives, it's not really in the way we anticipate it or we hoped for. So maybe we say under our breath, can you really help me? Do you think anyone in the crowd, holding up their palms, felt that kind of doubt? I mean, surely some of them must have, right? They'd heard about Lazarus, and they wanted to see who could wield such power. A mighty man, perhaps, like Samson, or maybe a warrior king who could defeat giants like David. But the Messiah who arrives seems like just another pilgrim here for the Passover. Quiet, humble, average, maybe even weak. And yet... Despite his lack of armies, despite the ample evidence that he's not shown up to do what they wanted, what is it that they cry out? Hosanna, save us. They believe even when all the evidence suggests otherwise, and they still proclaim him king. I tell you what, my four-year-old doubts my kingship that's for sure. He's getting better at obeying. But every time he says, but I don't want to, he's declaring himself king. And he's shocked. He's affronted even to the point of tears that anyone would dare tell him otherwise. I mean, he knows I'm his dad. He knows I like to give him good things. I like to take care of him and protect him. He knows at some level, even sometimes, probably, that I'm right. But... What he wants looks so real compared to what I say. Why would he stop playing outside just because dinner's inside? I mean, sure, it's cold, it's raining, and his stomach is hurting a little. But he's having fun, right? Could there really be something better for him waiting at the table? He's full of doubt. And you already know where I'm going with this, y'all. This is us. This is us. Jesus invites us to the table, and how often do we not want to come and sit? We avoid him. He offers us something, and we say, Is it really good? Are you truly king? Maybe, you know, if we build up a God in our own image, it would be easy to greet him with palms. But then it will also be easy to abandon him to be crucified. We need a king who doesn't arrive on our terms according to our expectations. We need a king like Jesus. And despite all of our doubts, he is one. So, here's what we need to do. We should worship Jesus like he's worthy of it, like Mary. Pour out ourselves for him. Give him our tears, our bodies, our wealth, our dignity. Lay it all at his feet. And then we should believe him. We should greet him with palms. He deserves. Treat him as the king that he is. Believe that he can save us and set aside our expectations. That's all we have to do, right? Just don't give in to doubt. Yeah, sounds easy, huh? But then the Pharisees show up and they name how it is we truly feel, don't they? See, they say, this is getting us nowhere. This is the real doubt, isn't it? We've been following him all this time and we're tired. Where is this getting us? We look around and we wonder, can such average seeming lives really be God's miracles? I mean, changing diapers, car payments, taxes, co-workers who smirk at us, Neighbors who think we're kooks, institutions that call us bigots, it's bad enough that we're all average. On top of that, we're presumed to be jerks. Well, but for good reason though, right? Because other Christians, they're the worst, aren't they? Other Christians who hurt our feelings, who misuse our hospitality, who wound us and don't apologize. Look at our lives, basements that flood, children that get sick and hurt, spouses who leave us, parents we can't get along with, car accidents, broken gutters, toilets that won't flush. The list of things and people that has let us down is always getting longer. Are you tired like me? Do you find yourself thinking, Is this it? This is getting me nowhere. Of course, we doubt. Of course, we do. It's a broken world and it's full of empty promises. Do you have dreams that never came to pass? Disappointments, heartbreak, time lost, chances spent? Are you hardened like I am? Are you thinking, I just don't want to be suckered anymore? See, That's the real problem we have with Jesus. He seems too good to be true. He says things like, I will supply your every need. I will clothe you like the lilies who do not toil. And we think, well, if I stick with doubt, maybe I won't be so disappointed next time. Maybe it won't hurt so bad, right? I know that's me today. If that's you, this is Jesus' answer to us. He says, okay, so you don't want to be suckered anymore. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to that cross, and I'm going to die this week. And then I'm going to raise myself to life. I'm going to meet Mary again in the garden. I'm going to let the disciples put their hands In my side, because even then, some of them will still doubt that I'm real. I'm going to do that because you can't. And even after I've saved you, when you feel trapped in your doubts, when you wonder if following me is really getting you anywhere, you can reach for me and tell me how you really feel. You don't have to feel ashamed about it either, because I've made forgiveness for it with my blood for every day, for every doubt, forever. What do you have to do to receive this? Cry out to him. Cry, Hosanna. Save me, Lord. And he will, because he has. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray for our hearts. Uh, Pray for our hearts this Sunday. I was praying before this. I'm praying now. I know it is hard sometimes to walk into this space if we're full of wonder or doubt or we're dwelling on disappointment. Lord, I pray you would meet us in that place. I pray you would tell us what's true. I pray we would remember that you knew we were going to feel these way these ways you were, we were going to feel these things and you knew the broken world we were inheriting by coming into it lord would you provide us with hope let us take a bigger risk today god if we've been holding back let us risk a little more lord help us to be honest Help us to be true with you about how we need you. Help us to believe even in our unbelief, God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.